How are you? I'm good. How are you? I am... I am good too. We live in an I am good culture. Everyone says, I'm good, I'm fine, I'm cool, I'm great. But that's simply not true. We're faking it. We're hiding it. We're wearing a mask trying to keep up a persona that's simply not true. I'm scared to let you in. I'm scared to let you see the real me. I'm scared what you might think. If I let you in, you would see that I'm not good, that I'm not fine, and I'm actually defeated. I'm depressed, I'm discouraged, and I'm disillusioned. Relationships, finances, school, work, marriage, kids, health. The truth is, I am done. How many of you are encouraged uh, this morning? <laughs> good morning. It's good to see you here today. Um, my name is Ethan. I am one of the pastors here, and it is, man, this is, uh, is going to be uh, a unique day. It's not every day that we decide to dive headlong into topics like depression. And um, as well, uh, the, it, it's raining of all, of all days. It's, it's kind of rainy and gloomy and kind of nasty out, out there, and so... Um, but we'll give it. We'll give it. We'll give it our best shot. Um, one of my favorite uh, pastors, probably my favorite pastor uh, in in, in all, all of history, is a pastor by the name of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. It's it's a it's a it's a wonderful name. I love that name. He was actually a British pastor and theologian that lived in the 19th century in London. And he did amazing things um, through God's help in the church that he was at, which was a cool name as well, called the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Cool name. And they did some amazing things. I mean, the ministry that they did in London was really almost second to none. I mean, literally, they built hospitals, they built orphanages, they built theological schools, they did education, they did amazing things. Thousands and thousands of people would show up to London to the Metropolitan Tabernacle to hear this guy named Charles Haddon Spurgeon uh, preach. They call him the Prince of Preachers. They say, that, they say that when he would preach that he couldn't help keep himself from being humorous. Uh, and he would, be, he would be criticized from uh, critics that would say that he would give too much humor in his sermons, which I think you can never have too much humor in your sermons, by the way. And, and they would criticize him, and he said, if you only knew what I didn't say, then you would be happy that I said only what I did say. And he was this prince of preachers, and people would come from all over the place to, to listen to him and to, to hear him. And the story of his life, it's in somewhat, it seems kind of glamorous. There's also a story of his life that isn't told very often, uh, that is a dark side of his story. He would write, he, he wrote hundreds and hundreds of, of letters back in his day because that was the means of technology in which people would converse. And he wrote letters and he wrote sermons and we have tons of things that he wrote and said. And he, he describes the, 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 the first season that he went into severe depression. It was one day when he was preaching and he was at a large hall. It was a, it was a large hall where thousands of people were going to come and they were going to come and hear him preach and literally thousands upon thousands and thousands of people come into this hall and he's preaching his sermon and in the middle of his sermon a few people stand up and they yell fire, which there was no fire. A few people stood up and yelled fire and, and created chaos. They said the balconies are falling. 
Literally, everyone scurries and tries to run out of the building and by, before it's all said and done, seven people died on that day. They died, and he, he, he tells the story of whenever that happened. He was the one responsible, he, he felt like. He was the one that was there, that was teaching, that was preaching that day. And he tells the story that after that happened, uh, he literally went into uh, seven solid days of depression where he couldn't hardly move. He couldn't hardly move, he couldn't hardly get up, he couldn't hardly put his feet on the ground, he couldn't hardly actually go through another day. And after that season, he, he would go on from different seasons of struggle uh, and pain. He was also, he had a debilitating illness, he had gout, which uh, prevented him from moving at times. His, his knees and his, his ankles would prevent him from even being able to, to walk, and he would describe hours of pain in the bed in which he would be lying on one side, and he would just hope for someone to be able to move him to the other side where it wouldn't be quite as painful. He would even go through other significant seasons of illness and, and struggle in which he would literally, for months at a time, they would take him away from London into a different uh, city with hopes that the air and the, the, the environment there would help him to rehabilitate. And he would go on to write and he would describe being in times of pain and struggle and depression and he would say sometimes I would be on my face and I would be on the ground and I would be crying and I would be weeping and I had no clue why and here we have the prince of preachers I mean, he's at the top I mean he he is like one of the most spiritual people you could say that, that has ever walked the face of the earth. I mean, he understands God and knows God in such a way he understands the scriptures and knows theology in a way that I never will. I mean, this, this, this man is unbelievably talented and gifted and competent and being used to do all sorts of amazing things. And yet, yet he lives a lifestyle where many days he is not okay. And he would actually go on to die a fairly early death in his 50s. And here's what we're trying to say for these few weeks in a series where perhaps you walk in here today or perhaps you're going through a season in your life where you're like, I am done. Here's what I, here's what I want you to, to hear today at the very beginning is I want to say that it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to not be okay. And we, we try to be okay. We want to be okay. We try to look the part. We try to dress the part. We show up here on Sunday. We try to show up to community group. We try to make sure that our friends and our family and our coworkers don't think negatively about us or poorly about us. And so we try to, to keep going and try to act like everything is just a fine and we aren't okay. And we want to just say that it is okay to not be okay. It's okay to not be okay. And today what we're going to do is we're going to look at a significant leader in the Bible, in the Old Testament, who was a prophet of God. He was by the name of Elijah, and we're going to look at him at a place where he was significantly, desperately not okay in severe depression, okay? So look with me in 1 Kings. If you've got a Bible, I want you to go ahead and open it there and look at 1 Kings chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. Uh, that's fine. We'll put the verses on the screens for you, and then we'll even give you a Bible today for free. If you don't have one, we'd love to be able to give you a Bible. But we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 19, where this story of a man named Elijah. Now, Elijah is a prophet of God, and a prophet in the Old Testament means they had an ear to God and a mouth to the people, that God used prophets in order to communicate his revelation 
revelation to his people. And he worked through these prophets in unbelievably amazing ways. There's several unbelievable things that Elijah did. Here's one of them. Um, Elijah, he, he confronts King Ahab. He confronts King Ahab, which is the king of over God's people at this time period. And because of the situation, because of the wickedness, because of what's going on in, in Israel, Elijah tells the king that it's not going to rain for three and a half years. And guess what? It doesn't rain for three and a half years. How many of you wish you had that kind of prayer power? You know, like, I mean, that's like pretty fantastic, right? I mean, you, you have the ability to pray. Kind of like, I mean, the, he, he, he does unbelievable things. He confronts this, this king, and it doesn't rain for years. Also, there's a story that uh, we're told just a couple chapters before this one, where he meets this a widow, this widow of Zarephath, and, and, and she is at the bottom, and she doesn't have any food or any oil. And Elijah literally tells her to go look back into her canisters, into her jars, and there is an unlimited amount of flour and oil that keeps coming from their, her jars. It's like Mary Poppins style. I mean, it's, it's, un, it's unbelievable. He would go on later, just, just right after that, the widow would actually have a son who would die, and guess what Elijah does? He raises the son from death, and the son comes back to, to life. He confronts King Ahab once again a, a little bit later after the season of, of drought, and he tells King Ahab, it's now going to rain for a season, and guess what? It starts to rain. It, it's, it's amazing. And then we come to this story right before our passage today where Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal to a duel at Mount Carmel. Now, i got to give you a little bit of, of context for what's, uh, what's happening here. Um, there is a, uh, the queen, you would say, Ahab's wife was a woman named Jezebel, unbelievably wicked woman. I mean, you read about this woman, and it is like ridiculous. I can't believe that she was actually in the people of God and did what she did. So here was her strategy for God's people. She wanted to eliminate all the prophets of God, right? which is like a bad idea. <laughs> so she liter literally, she, she murders all the prophets of God, except for Elijah and maybe, maybe a couple others. But she goes on a killing spree to try to kill God's prophets. And then she enlists into the kingdom uh, prophets of Baal, which was a false god, worship of a false god, and actually gives them housing, and pays them, and gives them a salary, and lets them worship in the temple and stuff. It's, 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 it's ridiculous. It's crazy. And here, Elijah, he is the one sent from God to Ahab and Jezebel to stop the madness, to stop the madness. And so Elijah, he actually con confronts uh, uh, Jezebel and Ahab and says, we're going to have a duel at Mount Carmel. And so as the story goes, I'll give you the short version. All the prophets of Baal, they come out to Mount Carmel, and, and they do this little display, and they put this altar in the middle and say, if you can have your gods light this altar on fire, then we will worship your God. And it literally, for hours and hours and hours, they do all these uh, crazy sacrificial rituals to try to get the fire to burn, and, and nothing happens. And Elijah, it's, it's kind of comical. He's actually on the side making fun of all the prophets of Baal because they can't make it, make it work. It's, if you read it, it's pretty funny. Well, he's, he's, he's making fun of them, and once they're all done, literally after hours, Elijah commands water to be thrown onto the altar multiple times. They drench it so that there is actually a trench of water around the altar, and he prays in one moment, and he prays, and he asks God to light the altar on fire, and lightning literally comes from heaven and strikes it, and it becomes on fire, and, and, and it's, it's crazy. It's, it's amazing. What like. like, if that, if you had the ability to do that, like, like, that would be pretty amazing, right? 
I mean, if God did that to you this afternoon, like we're going to Wrightsville Beach and we're going to have a, that would be like craziness, you know? I mean, can you imagine like experiencing that as Elijah? He was a man that had unbelievable um, things that happened in the way that God used him in his life, but we're going to see that he isn't immune to even the darkest, deepest pain in the world. So 1 Kings 19, look with me in verse 1. This is, this is how the story uh, goes on. It says this. And Ahab told Jezebel, his wife, all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Wow. News gets back to Jezebel of what Elijah has done, how he has defeated the prophets, how he has won. And Jezebel sends a messenger back to Elijah with a vow, a vow that she is going to kill Elijah within 24 hours. Elijah essentially here, he receives a death sentence. Can you imagine being... a Elijah getting this news, imagine the most powerful person in your country sends you a letter, sends you a message and says that you're going to die within 24 hours. Can you imagine being Elijah in that situation that you've got 24 hours to live, that your life is going to come to an end? Imagine what it's like for Elijah to receive a death sentence like that. I just wonder this morning... Um, I wonder how many of you this morning in your life, in your situation, in your story, perhaps you've received news maybe similar to like this. And so maybe, maybe you have received a, a death sentence in your life like Elijah. Maybe you got a phone call. Maybe you got an email. Maybe you got news about a death sentence. Maybe you or maybe someone that is close to you. Maybe you experienced something that maybe wasn't exactly a death sentence, but it might as well have been because it made you feel like your life was, was over. I know of several of the stories of people in our church here this morning, stories of people in their life that felt like they got a death sentence from a doctor, felt like they got a death sentence from a family member. I remember one of our elders telling the story of his daughter who went through significant struggle and illness as they walked through the diagnosis that they had received. I remember him still articulating that it was the hardest weekend of his life. The hardest weekend of his life. We've people in our congregation this morning that have terminal cancer where the diagnosis is not good. We have people in our congregation this morning have got News about a divorce, news about infidelity, news about adultery, news about something about their, their family, perhaps news about something with your, your child. You ever received a death sentence before? Or something that felt like a death sentence? It's a pretty hopeless feeling. It's a pretty hopeless feeling when you know that you're not in control of the circumstances and there isn't anything that you can do to change the circumstances you feel like you've got a death sentence. If you've ever been in that situation, if you've ever been a moment where you've begun to dive into depression, your, your heart, it just fills with dread. Your heart starts to race. It could be the sunniest day in, of the year and you can feel like clouds are over you. You feel like darkness fills the room. You feel like you can't see the sky, like the sun isn't shining. You even feel like no one understands you. You feel like no one understands you, like no one truly knows you. 
feel misunderstood, you feel alone, you feel like no one knows what it's like to be me. And then it gets worse, you feel like it's never going to change. You feel like it's never going to end. There have been seasons for me in this past year, not long seasons, uh, but, but short seasons, um, where even I have fell into moments and days of depression. It doesn't matter what your spouse says, it doesn't matter what your kids say, it doesn't matter what is going on around you, you feel like you just don't have the ability to change. You feel like you don't have the ability to change your circumstances. You even kind of secretly want to be happy, you, you kind of secretly want to change, but don't even know where to start, don't have the energy, don't have the fuel, don't have the, the ability to know where you would even start, you just feel like you are at the bottom. That's what happens to Elijah. We'll go on in verse 3. It says this, Then he was afraid. He responded to his circumstances with fear. He's afraid. And he arose and he ran for his life. And he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. See what Elijah does in response to his circumstances, in response to the worst news that he'd ever received in his entire life. What does he do? He, he falls into he fear. He falls into fear and he literally runs. That would be the response of flight. Uh, counselors will say that everyone either responds to, to circumstances or traumatic situations in your life with fight, flight, or freeze. Fight means you, you just want to fight whatever is happening against you. You, you. you get enraged with the circumstances and you fight back. Flight means you, you just run. You just run. You try as quickly as you can to get away. You don't want to be near the pain. You don't want to be close to it. You just, you just run. You flight. You, you go away. And then freeze. Freeze means you're just, you're just still. You don't know how to respond. You don't know what would be the right response to do. You don't know what to say. You just, you, you just really stand there. You don't know what to do. You either fight, flight, or freeze. And Elijah, he he opts for flight. He runs in response to his circumstances. He has fear. His heart begins to be filled with, with fear. And he goes on to the run. Here's the first thing that I want to say about our situation, our circumstances, and the things that happen to us is this. You cannot control your circumstances, but you can control how you respond to your circumstances. Like, your circumstances are so out of your control. I mean, the things that are going to happen to you in this next year, some of those maybe are self-inflicted wounds, but much of what is going to happen to you in the next coming year is just a result of circumstances. Things that are happening in your life which you don't have any control over. But you do, you do have control over how you respond to those circumstances. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to admit, it's not easy. I'm not saying that there's some secret recipe that's going to give you the ability to have a perfect response always to your circumstances. That just does not exist. But I am trying to say that you are not, you are not enslaved to how you respond to your circumstances, but that you have a decision in the matter of how you will respond to what happens to you. And Elijah here, in this moment, he responds with fear. And I'll, I'll, I'll say this here up front as well. Fear is never from God. Fear is never 
from God. We do read in the Old Testament specifically where it talks about the fear of the Lord, which means all of your concern, maybe all of your worry, maybe all of your angst is directed towards a holy God. That's the only acceptable means for fear that we read of in the scripture. Fear is never from God. It's never from him. Fear is going to paralyze you. It's going to prevent you from living the life that God has for you. And we see this very clearly in the New Testament in 2 Timothy 1 verse 7. It says this, For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and of sound mind. Which means that if you are in a circumstance that is very painful, if you are a circumstance that is very troubling, if you're in a circumstance that is unbelievably hard, I get that, and I don't want to minimize your pain, but I do want to say that if in that moment you respond to your circumstances with fear, that isn't from God. It isn't from God. If you truly know God in that moment and understand who he is in that moment, then fear is not an appropriate response to your circumstances. Now, there are two, um, two kinds of people in, in the world. Um, those who love roller coasters and those who hate roller coasters. All right. Now, I personally fall into the category in which I love uh, roller coasters. I remember being in a grade school and my family went to uh, Bush Gardens up in Williamsburg. And there's this roller coaster. I think it's still there today. I'm not sure. But it's called the Alpengeist. And it sounds very dreadful. It's the Alpengeist. It's like unbelievably fast, uh, something like 70 miles per, per hour. There's no floor to it. Your feet are just hanging. You've got your harness in. It's doing several loops. It's, 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 it's the most awesome roller coaster ever. Now, in, in that moment, on a roller coaster, there are only uh, two kinds of people, those people that are loving the experience and those that are hating the experience. Now, if you are loving the experience in that situation... If you are loving a roller coaster, that either you are completely ignorant of everything that could go wrong in that situation. <laughs> That's possible. But what's happening, if you're loving that situation, you're actually in a place where you are trusting, you're trusting the person that made and designed the roller coaster that it's actually going to operate the way that it should operate. And in that moment, you actually have the ability to enjoy the experience. You have the ability to enjoy what the experience was designed to do to get you where it was designed to, to get you. And in that moment, you feel free because you can actually take it in and enjoy it. Now, the person that is freaked out, that hates roller coasters, in your mind, you feel like this is going to go badly. Like, you feel like this is not going to go well. Something is going to happen that is not going to go well. Because as good as that engineer must, could have been... As good as that designer could have been who made this roller coaster, I'm sure there's a bolt somewhere that is going to come unloose. And in that moment, you don't actually have the ability to enjoy the experience. Rather, you're plagued by fear and you're actually prevented, prevented from being able to enjoy the experience that it was designed to enjoy. Now, the illustration breaks down, okay? So some of you are, are, are going to like rail on me about this. But when you don't have the ability to enjoy a roller coaster because you are denying the creator of the roller coaster, you're denying his ability that he can keep you safe on that roller coaster. And when we live throughout our lives and when we are paralyzed and plagued by fear in situations, we are forgetting the God who is the architect over our lives. We're fearing the God that is responsible, the God who understands our plight and the God who can get us to the end where he wants us to be. 
We're denying, we're forgetting who God is. I've heard it said this way before. You have to remember who you are and whose you are. If you have the ability to live your life and to recognize who you are in God, that you're a child of God, that you're a son of God, that you're a daughter of the Most High God, and understand who you are and understand whose you are, then it actually gives you the ability to be free from fearful uh, responses to circumstances. And Elijah here is in a moment where he forgets who God is. And he forgets who he is in God. Even after everything amazing that has happened in Elijah's life, after everything that God has done through his life, he forgets. And Elijah begins to believe a false narrative about his life rather than a true narrative. Elijah lets what others say about him define him rather than what God says about him define him. This is what I mentioned last Sunday. That every single one of us have a narrative of which we believe of our lives. And that narrative is either a false narrative or it is a true narrative. A false narrative lets what other people say about you, uh, let what they say is true. What circumstances say about you, true. A, a true. a true narrative, it doesn't let other people define for you uh, your life. It lets God define your life. What God says about you, what God says about your circumstance, what he has said about you, let that be true over you. Which means today that every single one of us has to choose who we're going to let define us. Who are you going to let define you today? Elijah, he is no longer looking at God. And rather than being fixated on God, he is fixated at the enemy. Rather than being fixated on God, he is fixated on his circumstances, which means you're going to have to choose what you're going to look at. You're going to have to choose what you're going to be fixated on. You can be fixated on the past if you want. You can be fixated on what that person said about you. You can be fixated on what happened to you, of what you went through, or you can be fixated on God and what God says about you. And regardless of the circumstances that you walk through, that he has a plan and a purpose even in the middle of your pain. Which means you've got to set your attention and your direction on what you're going to look at. And I can't do that for you. You have to choose what you're going to look at. You have to choose what you're going to be fixated on. It says this, Paul says this in Romans chapter 8, verse 6. He says, for to set the mind on the flesh, which is earthly realities, is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. And some people today, I don't want to try to minimize your pain. I don't want to try to act like your pain isn't real. I don't want to act like your circumstances aren't real. I'm not trying to say that at all. All I'm trying to say is that in the middle of the worst circumstances of your life, in the middle of the worst pain in your life, just choose what you're going to set your mind on. Choose what you're going to look at, which means you have to tell your brain, you have to tell your mind what you're going to look at. You're going to have to determine what you allow in your brain or not. You're going to have to determine what is welcome and what is not welcome in your mind. We said this last week, to take every thought captive to obey Christ. Take every thought captive, which is determining what you're going to think about and what you are not going to think about. I also want to re- reference this. Isaiah 26, verses 3 and 4, it says this. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Which God is promising us today that he will actually keep us in a state of peace if our mind is focused on him, if we trust in him, that we trust that he is in sovereign control of our circumstances. And some of you, 
The reason that you have a tough time right now and the reason that you are paralyzed with fear is because you don't believe in a God that is big enough for your circumstances. God made the universe fairly easily. He came up with the idea of oxygen. He thought of human beings. He thought of the eye and the retina and the cornea and how it would work and how it would perceive depth perception. And he created your lungs and how your lungs would intake oxygen and exhale and breathe and how your heart, this interesting muscle in the middle of your chest, would just keep beating and beating and beating regardless of your control over your heart. That's, that's the God that we serve. And if that is our God, then he has the ability... He has the ability to work in our circumstances and in our situations in such a way that we can trust him with our very life. And perhaps the reason, maybe somebody today, perhaps the reason why some of the things that you are facing, you are facing, isn't because of your circumstances, it's because of your God, that you don't have a big enough view of God. And we see here that Elijah, man, he struggles. He struggles, he responds with fear and he runs and We've got to be careful not to beat him up and not to make him look like an idiot because this is us. This is us. This is what happens to us whenever we are faced with these kind of circumstances. And Elijah in this situation doesn't need our, our judgment. He needs our empathy. He needs our empathy. Now look with me at the end of verse 3 and verse 4. It says this. This is important. He left his servant there. But he himself, this is by himself, he went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, he prays to God, he says, it is enough. Perhaps you can say, I'm done. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. A couple things I need to point out about this verse. Elijah's on the run. He's running for his life. And what does he do? He abandons community. He abandons the people that are closest to him, and he decides that he will run on his own into the wilderness, into the desert all by himself. That's the first thing that happens whenever we get into painful, dark situations, is we feel like it would be better to be alone than to be with people. He abandons his servants and the people that are with him. He leaves community, and rather than staying in community, he goes into isolation. You know what Elijah feels here when, when he's hurting? Is, is when we hurt, we want to hide you ever feel like that? When you hurt, you just want to hide. You want to get alone. You want to get by yourself. You don't want to be around uh, people. You just want to avoid community. You want to avoid community group. You don't want to show up. You don't want to talk on the phone to, to anyone. You don't want to show up to worship gatherings on Sundays because you would rather just hide uh, rather than to face your hurt with somebody. There's a doctor in our church, um, a psychiatrist, who, who told me this. He said this. Tom Matthews said, everyone needs a tribe. He said, everyone needs a tribe. What he means by here is that he recognizes that we were made for community, that God designed us and wired us in such a way that we were made for community, that we need other people in order to make it through this world. We need people. We need relationships. We need people that we can press in on and people that can press in on us that we can walk through life with. But Elijah here, he's in the middle of isolation. He's all by himself. It says that he finds a broom tree. I don't know what that is, but I assume that it had shade. And he's all by himself, and he's on the run. And then he tells God. 
he tells God that he just wants to die. Elijah gets to a point in his life, he gets to a place in his life where he would rather die than face tomorrow. This isn't like metaphorical, symbolic speech. This is Elijah being honest with God. He's being honest with God. He has suicidal thoughts. Suicidal thoughts, he's actually thinking about ending his life, and he asks and pleads with God if he could end his life right there. Read of a story this past week that happened in Michigan just a couple weeks ago of a young 11-year-old boy. An 11-year-old boy who got a false, a fake text message from his friends saying that his girlfriend had committed suicide. And the 11-year-old boy decides to hang himself in his bedroom. Ends his life. This is, this is an 11-year-old boy in the middle of pain, in the middle of a situation where he doesn't feel like life is worth moving forward. And here's what often happens is that when we get in these situations, when we get in these moments where we feel like our life doesn't have any meaning, any value, we feel like it would be better to end our lives than to keep going, we, rather than ex- externalize our emotions, we internalize our emotions. We keep them inside. But here, here's, here's what I love about Elijah. This is a good thing. He communicates his pain to God. He communicates his pain to God. I just want to ask you today, have you ever done that with God? Maybe you're here, maybe you're at the bottom, maybe, maybe you've had suicidal thoughts, maybe you've thought about ending your life, maybe you're at a place where it doesn't feel like it's worth going on. To... Have you ever communicated that to God? Have you ever just told God that? I promise you that God isn't afraid of that. I promise you that God isn't scared of that, that, that God isn't annoyed by that. I promise you that God uh, wants to hear that and wants you to be able to express that to him. And I'll say that if you're in a situation even today where you're having suicidal thoughts or you're thinking about ending uh, your life, you need to tell someone. You need to tell someone. You need to let someone walk through that uh, with you, which means if you are a person in the room and someone communicates to you that they have suicidal thoughts, you need to welcome that. You need to take that in. You don't need to treat them like they're crazy. You don't need to treat them like they're weird. You don't need to treat them like uh, this, is an un- this is an unsolvable situation. You need to hear that. You need to have ears to be able to hear. And you need to, to if, you're, if you're struggling with that, you need to communicate that to someone. You need to communicate it to God. And, and then I would also say we, we have actually licensed professional counselors that are here at our church. And I would say you, you need to spend some time with a professional counselor. Like just someone to be able to hear what you're going through and to be able to help you process through that situation, even though you don't feel like doing it. Me and my wife, we, we practice uh, counseling, which means we, we go see a counselor. We actually have scheduled times in which we go and sit down with someone to help us process through our life and our pain and our situation, mental situations, whatever we're, we're facing. And so I just want to say today, if, if you're walking through that, if you're in the middle of suicidal thoughts, you're welcome here. We love you. We're not going to be afraid of you. We're not going to be scared of you. We're not going to weird you out. We're not going to shame you. We're not going to embarrass you. We're going to welcome you and do the best that we can to love you. Love you and say you're welcome here. And we're going to help you as best we can walk you through, walk through that pain with you. And we can direct you to even some professional help. Now here's what goes on. Verse 5, it says this. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. It means he took a nap. <laughs> you know, some, sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is take a nap. Like, well, I'm going to take a nap this afternoon. You're welcome. You're welcome. And he lay down and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. 
This is, this is amazing. Elijah is, is exhausted. I mean, he's been on his own. He's been trying to do this on his own. How many of you, you, you just get exhausted in the middle of your hurt, in the middle of your pain? Elijah is completely exhausted. And he, he's struggling. He takes a nap. He takes a nap for the glory of God. And he's there, and while he's, while he's napping, while he's under the broom tree, while he's at the bottom, while he's at the end, while he doesn't want to move forward, guess what God does? God shows up, and God sends an angel, and, and an angel comes, and look what the angel does. The angel touches him, touches his, his body, physically touches him, so that he can feel him. And the, and the angel tells to him, arise and eat. We see later on in the next verse that this is the angel of the Lord. This is the angel of the Lord. And most commentators say that throughout the Old Testament, when you see the phrase, the angel of the Lord, that's a Christophany. Big theological word. This is what it means. A Christophany means that it is an is appearance and an Old Testament appearance of Christ in, in, in the Old Testament. So just for clarification, we believe in a God that is three in one. That is three persons in one being, that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And our God has existed for eternity and for eternity past, which means God the Son, which is Jesus Christ, has existed for eternity past, which means throughout the Old Testament. And we see that Jesus actually makes himself known and makes himself present in the Old Testament, that he shows up on the scene. And here we have perhaps, I don't know this conclusively, but here we see that the angel of the Lord comes and touches Elijah. What this means is that perhaps Jesus comes in Elijah's darkest moment and he touches him. It means that God shows up on the scene when Elijah is in the desert, when he's all alone, when he's at the bottom, God shows up and touches him. Here's here's what this means. God will meet you wherever you are. God will meet you wherever you are. That means even when you are running away from God, that God is running to you. It means that even when you are giving up on God, that God is not giving up on you. And that's the story of the gospel. That's the story of the good news of what Christianity is, is that though we were running from God and though we were trying to get away from God, that God was pursuing us, that God was running after us. And we know, the way that we know that is true is because Christ came and Christ entered human history. He entered human history and he walked the ground that, that we walked and he lived the life that we couldn't live. He died the death on the cross that was meant for us and he conquered the grave that we could not conquer which means there is no situation, there is no circumstance, there is no moment, there is no day in which God will not show up in your life. That God will meet you wherever you are today. And whether you're in college and you're struggling with substance abuse and you're at the bottom, or whether you're a single mom and you're feeling like your life doesn't have any meaning, or maybe you are retired and maybe you're an empty nester and you don't understand why God is keeping you on this planet, God can meet you there. He can meet you there. He can show, he's actually good at that. He's actually good at showing up in those circumstances. When you get news about a separation, when you get news about a child that is sick, that God shows up and he meets you there. And notice that God, the way that God responds to Elijah's situation. I love this. God doesn't rebuke Elijah. He doesn't rebuke Elijah. He doesn't lecture him. He doesn't tell him to get over it. He doesn't tell Elijah to pick himself up by his bootstraps. He he just touches Elijah. He touches Elijah where he is and he sends an angel to come and to comfort him and says, arise and, and eat. Which means God is not afraid of your pain. 
He's not afraid of your pain. He's not ashamed of your pain. He's not alarmed at your depression. He's not alarmed at your hurt. He actually welcomes your pain and your depression and says, come to me. Jesus even says it this way in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. That means Jesus is in the business of giving people that are burdened and broken, giving them rest. It means if you're struggling today and if you're at the bottom that Jesus can give you rest. That means that God can comfort your soul even in the worst of circumstances. And God renews Elijah. He gives Elijah strength. And he hasn't changed Elijah's circumstances yet. Jezebel is still a reality. The enemy is still there, but God is meeting him in the middle of his circumstances. In verse 6, it goes on and says this. This is Elijah. This is pretty, this is pretty cool. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a, a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water, and he ate and drank and lay down again. So he wakes up, and it's like there's pancakes right beside him. He's like, man, that's, someone made me some hot, fresh, steaming pancakes, which, by the way, a Dixie Grill downtown has the best pancakes in the world. They are absolutely uh, amazing. I love them. I mean, I just, I love, and here he wakes up, he wakes up, and God touches him. God touches him, and he, and he makes him some fresh pancakes. He makes him a, a, a meal to eat, which means God not only ministers to his emotional needs, but God ministers also to his physical needs. It means that, that God cooks a meal for him. I mean, God shows up in the middle of his pain and gives him something to eat, which means sometimes the most spiritual thing that you can do for a person that is in pain is just make him some pancakes. <laughs> If someone texts you and they're having a tough time, sometimes it's a good thing to send them a Bible verse, but sometimes it's better to send them some pancakes and just to show up in their life, to show up in their situation and to say, I'm coming. I'm coming to be with you. I'm coming to help. Or why don't you come over? Why don't we spend some time together? Why don't we talk? Why don't we eat? Why don't you take a meal? And we need, we need as a church, we need to do better at the art of recovering eating together and ministering together in that way. Jesus is all the time eating with people. Like, he loves to eat. He's like an eating fanatic. Like, every opportunity, he's, he's got a meal, and he's bringing people together, and he's, he's eating because it's at the meal table where a lot of ministry uh, happens. And we need to pray for people. We need to pray for people, but we also need to, to cook for people. But I love this, that, that God, God doesn't just give Elijah a Bible verse. God ministers to his, his physical needs. And I'll, I'll say this as well. We are very complex individuals. Like, way complex than we even realize. Like, that scientists aren't even able to figure out. That, that you, that as a, as a human, you are a very complex individual, which means there is a biological part of you. That means there is a physical reality about your life and your circumstances, which means how you eat plays a role in your life. How you diet impacts how you feel. That you're, there's a biological part of you. There's also a psychological part of you. There's a mental reality about you that your thoughts, that your experiences, your past, your mental framework actually plays into how you feel and how you think. And there's a sociological part of you, which is the relational reality, the relational capacity to have a community, to have a tribe, to have relationships, which play into your life, which plays into how you feel and how you live. And there is a very spiritual part of you. That you are a spiritual individual, which means there is a divine reality about you, which means there is a soul connection about your life. 
And there isn't one easy fix to your situation. We need to recognize that there's a biological uh, reality and a psychological and a sociological and a spiritual reality to our lives. And I'll just say this as well. Most, most of us aren't very good at ar- architecting and creating lives in which we thrive in our biology, our psychology, our sociology, and, and our spirituality. We don't really do a good job. Reminds me of just a few weeks ago, my wife and I, we took a trip to Asheville together, and we went to the Biltmore uh, estate, which you've ever been there. It's pretty fantastic. It's amazing. Now, we went to a part that I had never been before, which was outside in the gardens. There's rose gardens, a rose garden. It's it's fantastic. It's huge. It's almost the size of a city block, and there's trails and brick paths that that meander through, and there's just literally hundreds and hundreds of of rose bushes that are there that are scattered throughout this entire uh, rose garden. And my, my favorite part was at the end of the Rose Garden, they actually had greenhouses, a huge, huge greenhouse, about 30 feet high. And then they had several different sections that you could walk down with different plants. And the doors were closed, but they had light that could come in. And, and I remember walking in there, and, and it, was, it, was, it was amazing. We're, we're walking through, and they have all of these plants and flowers, and there are certain moisture levels and temperature levels. Um, even, even they have wind, this is, they have windows that self that automated automatically open so that air can come in and out. They have automated sprinkler systems that know when to give moisture and when not to give moisture. They have the right pots there. They have the right uh, flooring so that they create an environment in which all of those plants have the ability to thrive. And I just wonder if for us as, as people, are we intentional about creating an environment in which we can thrive as people? Are, are, are you creating an, an environment in which you have the ability to thrive, that, that God instructed for you? Like, like breathing in like air, seeing sunlight, eating healthy meals, going for a walk, exercising your body, relationships and conversations with people that you should have conversations with. Not having relationships and conversations with people that you shouldn't be having those with. A healthy work-life balance. See, a lot of, lot of, lot of times the result of, our, the result of our issue like Elijah is that we're just hungry and we're starved. And we're not living out the physical and emotional and psychological realities that God would have us to live in. Now look at me at verse 7. This is, this is the end of our passage. It says this. And the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. Verse 8. And this is Elijah. He arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food. Forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. This is amazing. Once the Lord has renewed Elijah physically, Once he has fed him, once he has given him the nutrition that his body needs, it's time to renew him spiritually. It's time to renew Elijah spiritually. And it says that God has a journey for him, a journey for 40 days that God's going to sustain him on. And at the end of that journey, God's going to bring him to the mountain of God, to Horeb. I had to look this up because I wasn't exactly sure what Horeb was. And I looked this up. This is actually Mount Sinai, which is littered throughout the Old Testament. Mount Sinai in the Old Testament for God's people, it came to represent the place where God came down to his people. 
It came to be the place that was representative of where God would come and meet people, where his revelation would be known. This is a place that God is taking Elijah, where he's going to reveal himself to Elijah, where he's going to take him back to the mountain of God, where God isn't, uh, God isn't content with leaving Elijah in the desert. Rather, he is taking him to the mountain of God. And I'll say it this way. Don't give up in the desert because God is taking you to the mountain. Don't give up in the desert. I know it's hard. I know it's painful. I know it's, there's anguish, anxiety. I know it's, there's trouble. I know, I know it's extremely hard and you feel like you want to give up. But don't give up in the desert because God is taking you to the mountain. Which means God has a purpose for your life. He's got a plan for your life. He's taking you to a specific place. He's taking you there. And do not give up. And I don't know how long it's going to take. I don't know how long your mountain is away. I can't tell you if it's today. I can't tell you if it's tomorrow or if it's a few weeks from now, but don't give up in the desert because God is taking you to the mountain, which means God is going to make a way. He's going to make a way. God's going to give you a turnaround. God's going to give you a fresh start. You're not too far for God. It's not too late. And that Jesus is always here. And Jesus never gives up on you. Jesus never stops forgiving. He never stops healing. He never stops loving. It's a God that we serve. So I want to say to you today, don't give up. Don't give up. Whatever it is that you're fighting, whatever it is that you're going through, hang in there. Hang in in the desert because God is going to take you to his mountain. And I'll say this as well. I think it's very interesting that this angel of the Lord, perhaps Jesus Christ himself, he comes and he gives Elijah bread. He feeds Elijah a meal. I think that's a picture today. That Jesus here today for you, that Jesus gives you a meal. Not just physical bread, but Jesus would actually give his body, which would be living bread for you. Jesus would go to the cross, and his body would be broken for you. He would shed his blood for you. That's what we do in communion. We celebrate communion. We, we eat. We eat the bread. It's a picture of Jesus, his body that was broken for you. Maybe today, maybe you just need to be, maybe you need to take communion for the first time today. Maybe you need to be someone that just takes Jesus for the first time. Physically, eat it, which represents the living bread that he gives you that sustains your, your soul. And Jesus is the food that not just satisfies your stomach, but it's the food that's, he's the food that satisfies your soul today. And regardless of where you are, regardless of where you're at, there's hope. There's hope for you. There's hope for you in Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. Even when we feel like we're at the bottom, even when we feel like there isn't hope, even when we feel like we want to give up, like we're depressed and we can't move on. God, give us hope today. We believe that the Lord is near the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. Mm. 
we believe that today, God. We believe that you, you save us. You meet us where we are, even if we're crushed in our spirit, even if we're broken in our spirit. Even when we're at the bottom, you come. And so, God, we remember and we trust. And we say this in Jesus' good name. Amen.